Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. Today we're going to be talking about the foods in the Bible. That's right, we're going to take a look at all the foods that the ancient Israelites would have eaten, the foods that are mentioned in the Bible, what Jesus would have eaten at the Last Supper, and what was the actual fruit in the Garden of Eden. So let's open up our Bibles and take a bite into what we find. It's a good thing I ate before this episode because oh. I'm going to be getting hungry as we start talking about food. And Ooh. this is one juicy apple. <laughs> and let me tell you, I don't know if there's an apple in the Bible, but if if there is. Now, we're going to get into that, but uh, I don't think there is. So hmm. nice to be back in the studio with you guys. I think this is going to be a really interesting episode. Um, food is so integral to our everyday life. It's so integral to the faith, the way that people throughout history have celebrated their faith and uh, their community together. Um, and it's very interwoven into, you know, the incarnational nature of the second person of the Trinity. So it's going to be a really yeah. interesting episode. Yeah, right off the bat, book of Genesis, I mean, in the creative hand of God, we're reading in chapter one about fruit that's coming from the tree. So Genesis chapter one, verse 28 through 31, I'm going to focus in just a moment on verse 29. God also said, see, I give you every seed bearing plant all over the earth and every tree that has seed bearing fruit on it to be your food. So right off the bat, like book of Genesis chapter one, we're already hearing about food and the specifications of food when God gets into the restricted fruit within there, the garden. There's even a, you know, eschatological or looking forward to heaven where even Jesus Christ himself says that, you know, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until mm -hmm. I'm with you in heaven. So, you know, food, again, like you said, is an integral part and, you know, should not be overlooked uh, to, to contemplate. You, you know? know, I mean, in, in the times of the Bible, you know, before refrigeration, the really the only means of preservation of food was, you know, salt or fermenting. So food was very continually on the mind because you had to always be, you know, thinking about food to stay alive. Nowadays, you know, you could just have yeah. food delivered at any moment. It wasn't like that. So food was so important and so front of the mind. And I think it really shows throughout the scriptures um, that that approach. Yeah. And how labor intensive food preparation is, mm -hmm. you know, within Judaism, but even just in the daily practice of, you know, imagine you had to go out and prepare a chicken for, you know, for food, you have to pluck the feathers. And, you know, we were just talking about that the other day, Delacrosse, you know, you went out hunting and you, you got a buck. And, you know, you're showing your children, this is how you, this is how you prepare, yeah. you know, and, and we have lost our sensibilities culturally mm -hmm. because of how easy it is to go up to Wendy's and have one of those right. uh, burgers that you yeah. had along the way to the studio just yeah. the other day. Yeah. You don't have to cut anything's head off. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to gut it. You don't have yeah. to, you know, put a knife through it. So it really has desensitized us to the true nature of it. But I think it also makes us less grateful. And I think it also kind of encourages That's a, great point. A, a poor behavior or poor attitude towards animals because, you know, back in the day, I mean, you were slaughtering an animal. This is something that you raised for a couple of years. You put a lot of care it's into it. It's a big deal. And you gave thanks to God yeah. for this animal and you gave thanks to the animal for being yeah. something that would nourish your family in so many ways. And talk about bad behavior. We don't want you to have bad behavior <laughs> and not follow our show on our social media platforms. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you're not following us... Get with the program, okay? 
Follow, and if you're watching subscribe. this on YouTube, I want you to absolutely slaughter that subscribe button, right? <laughs> Just like you are taking out a, you know, a calf, same thing, right? I want you to go with that kind of vigor at the subscribe button. <laughs> <laughs> Click with authority. And make, sure that you, and make sure that you give us a little thumbs up, too. That helps us out. And, you know, before we get started, we can't start really without saying a big thank you to our patrons. You know, your financial contributions help us to produce the show and, and prepare this beautiful environment. And the show's spreading to new markets each and every month, and we're reaching new people. And it's just been a joy to really develop community online with you. So if you're out there considering becoming a financial supporter of the show, please go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon, and there you'll see all the cool tiers. We've got hoodies and all sorts of gear to send your way to say thank you for supporting the show. Awesome. Yeah, big shout out to our patrons. Yeah. So the first thing I want to get into is... The aforementioned apple that you are mm. eating like an absolute movie villain, but that's okay. <laughs> so, I think when people... <laughs> no, see, it's never like that. The cocky people in movies eat apples. It's like a common yeah, trope. It is. Um, so, I think that's the first thing that maybe comes to people's mind uh, when they talk about food in the Bible is yep. the apple in the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. right? Because it's so iconic. It's like, you know, uh, you know, Eve ate the apple and that's our downfall. But did that really happen? Was it really an apple? Now, interesting, I, the Bible never mentions with any specificity what Eve actually ate. It just says the fruit. The fruit. Now. But it came from a tree. Came from, it doesn't necessarily. Yeah, it does. Because it does. It's a tree. It comes from a tree. Right. Yeah. But it doesn't say what kind of tree. Right. So the reason that we get apple is because when St. Jerome was translating the Vulgate, right? And he was translating the scriptures from the original Greek and Hebrew. Um, the word that he used for the fruit, the generic term, the fruit was malum, right? Which means roughly apple. Hmm. Okay. But it was kind of a play on words because evil means in Latin is malleus, right? Malice. Yeah. Malleus, right? Yeah. So then you have malum, malice comes from. Right. So yeah. you have the word malum, which is kind of later became what the apples were called. So that's how you get that kind of interconnection between the apple and evil. It's really kind of a pun, right? right? It was not really intended to specifically say this was an apple. Yeah. You know? That, that is probably one of the most interesting things that I've heard in a while about scripture. Mm -hmm. And and it's important, you know, we've had a, we've had an episode on, you know, misquoted mm -hmm. scriptures. You know, this is definitely yeah. probably up there at the very top tier because it's been depicted in so much art and so much culture throughout the period of time, mm -hmm. you know, from from Jerome all the way up to present day, the perception is Apple. Mm -hmm. But that's why we need to open up our Bibles and take a closer look at what is actually being said. Yeah. And it's not like you're putting yourself in any mortal sin. No. I think it's an apple. But it, it gets to the point of how interesting scripture can be in the context. And, and tradition, even, too. Yeah. E even the English translation even wrote into fruit. So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like this is this long forgotten thing. It's been corrected in the English language. Yeah. Now, what was it that Eve actually probably ate. So, I mean, if you're just looking at scripture, again, you're looking at the context. Well, what did Adam and Eve do immediately after eating the fruit? They realized they were naked, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't have no clothes naked. on. Naked. So what did they do? What did they cover themselves with? Mm. A leaf. What kind a of leaf? Fig leaf. Fig leaf. Fig leaf. So it could have very well been I would been imagine a you, you take a bite, you're like, hmm, that's good. Oh, crap, I'm, I'm naked. naked. Pop. Crap. Yeah. Cover up the, you know. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, the family bits, right? And then, and then even Jesus, <laughs> the family bits. Well, then, my word. And then even Jesus uh, mentions, uh, you know, the fig tree when he was leaving uh, Bethany, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. I mean, God hates figs. I mean, he yeah. cursed that tree pretty hard. <laughs> he did. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think if you look at the context, it's probably more likely that it was a fig. My number one, uh, apple. Apples come from... Kazakhstan originally, right? right? They there probably wasn't apples in the area. I mean, the fruits that were growing were pomegranates, uh, you know, like citrus and figs. I would say that it was probably a fig. Now, it could have been something completely and entirely mystical because it was the center of the Garden of Eden. But if you're just kind of doing real conjecture and kind of looking at it scripturally, that would be my guess. And a lot of that comes from and a lot of medieval Jewish um, scholars really break down the Old Testament in some really interesting ways. Uh, You know, I mean, there's a lot of things that are counter because they were trying to combat Christianity, but some very interesting exegesis that they do, which Mm -hmm. I think is helpful. Mm -hmm. What I love about the scriptural context of all this Genesis chapter three is one, you have, you know, the immediate, uh, the eyes of both of them were open. So Adam and Eve's eyes were open. They realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves to the point what she was mentioning with the fig as being the possible fruit that, that was, um, you know, ingested. And then, but then as you skip forward, um, you begin to realize this, uh, now this kind of uh, polarization and this division between all of creation. And now there's a conflict within the process of feasting and food with the human person. As you get to uh, Genesis chapter three, verse 17 and 18 to the man, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat, cursed be the ground because of you and toil shall you eat its yield all the days of your life. In in paradise, in, in, in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't toilsome. Like it wasn't the burden of preparing food. Now there's like, tend. yeah, now there's a burden. No, and you this, just walked up and grabbed a steak right off the cow. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And the cow was like, hey, no problem. Here's another one. And they didn't die because there's no death in the garden. In verse 18, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to you as you eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face, you, you shall get bread to eat until you return to the ground from which you were taken for you are dirt and to dirt you shall return. So right you know in in Genesis you have the essence of our human nature depending on eating, mm-hmm. you know, and and retrieving the fruit that comes from God's mercy. But now there's a labor associated, and this is this is what's going to give birth to you know the preparation process of what one eats mm-hmm. and and the rituals that that are given birth to. Interesting. So. Let's kind of fast forward a little bit. So Adam and Eve, they get the old bootski out of out of Eden because you know they ate the apple fig. They gone. They gone. Right. <laughs> they had an apple fig noon, which are great. I think they have those. Um, so what did the people of biblical times, you know, pre temple temple period, second temple period, what did they eat? Um, it, it's pretty common to what they still eat today because those are the kinds of foods that are um, native to the area. Yeah. So in, in scripture, and I'll put a list to this on the website, there's a full list of every reference to a specific type of food in scripture, and it shows exactly where it's at, you know, apples, almonds, dates, figs, right? 
but they would have eaten a lot of those types of things, a lot of grains, uh, barley uh, and wheat. Olives. Uh, olives. They would have eaten seeds, Chickpeas, a, lot of, a lot of nuts. Hummus. Hummus. Yeah. hummus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, probably. Yeah. Oil, mm-hmm. olive yeah. oil and, and chickpeas, ground chickpeas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With sesame tahini. Yeah. Can't forget that. I, I don't know, know if they had You know, that. going to Israel, though, and, and spending time yeah. in the Middle East, like entering into those cultures and, and really by way of the, the pathway of food, mm-hmm. you know, sitting down at a table, some of the greatest memories and, and the best education you could ever get is yeah. really traveling to a different culture and experiencing that, yeah. you know, like you've Shabbats. spent some time. Yeah. Yeah. I, had, I celebrated Shabbats with a Jewish guy that we met on the street because yeah. we went to get coffee and everything was closed. Mm-hmm. And, and those leave an impactful, oh, yeah. experiential memory yeah. within you that, that you entered into something so profoundly powerful like the Shabbat Shalom and entering into that peace and like it's around the table, everything slows down, everything's quiet. You know, as a human being, like that labor of, of making, you know, every type of effort to prepare the table with these specific flavors, mm-hmm. it, man, that's the the essence of, of what we're called to scripturally, yeah. but also, you know, we, we value that. It's yeah. an amazing and, value. I mean, even to us as a, Italian-Americans growing up with Italians mm-hmm. and, and the way that we ate was very different, I think, than a lot of mm-hmm. our friends mm-hmm. growing up, you know, the way that food was prepared. Uh, the way that grandma's made you eat and finish what you eat, mm-hmm. or you get your butt kicked, you know, like yeah. things like that. See, but I, I, I think that's common to all cultures. You it, know? Is. Every, it is. That's you know, what we're saying. But, you know, but the particularities of what you're eating are mm-hmm. what really makes a culture distinct, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, yep. Italians, you have, you know, your food and Slavs have theirs. And, and how you're eating it too, uh-huh. right? Like the, um, uh, I want to say the, the, the sort of, uh, ornamentality or like the the the, the way it's prepared mm-hmm. and and the way you sit down and the prayers yeah. and you know even as Catholics you know like you know I've been to different countries and I've mm-hmm. seen the expression of our faith in very different mm-hmm. ways uh that that also kind of goes and flows into the way that food is yeah I've been trying to have dinner with a Ukrainian Catholic family your food's going to get cold because there's so many prayers and songs before you eat. It's, it's crazy, you know? It's really cool, though. It is know? cool. It's beautiful, and it's the essence of life. And, you know, being a pastor in a community, what we're trying to accent is all of the ethnic backgrounds and the cultural expressions mm-hmm. and food and music and and festive garment. And to really retain that, to pass that on to our kids. You want to preserve it. You have to preserve uh-huh. it. And, you know, when, when you enter into a Slav's house, or I grew up with a, a huge Filipino community. When I entered Filipino into- Filipino food's so good. Oh, my goodness. And it was awesome. But you had to pray the rosary before you, you ate, you wow. know? So I'd be sitting down after basketball all day, and, and you'd be smelling the lumpia off of the pan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, my goodness. Mm-hmm. So Remember those sisters made us those? Oh, my oh. gosh. So <laughs> yeah, those God bless you had those to sisters. roll me out of there. I know. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, if you look at the way food is consumed in the United States and uh, especially in like suburbia, uh, you know, everything's sort of packaged. So yeah. You, yeah. you eat pho, you know, and it's just like the pho town or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of lost that that cultural, deep mm-hmm. cultural expression of a family feeding you their mm-hmm. food. And it has kind of been labeled and packaged so mm-hmm. that you would come there. Mm-hmm. And now yeah. if I have to wait more than 15 minutes in this restaurant right. to eat something yeah. or 30 minutes or an, could you imagine yeah. sitting down at a restaurant and have to wait an hour? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, no way. Like you, you yeah. would give that, you know, you you'd jump you, you on Yelp, Yelp and yeah. like blast this, yeah. this restaurant. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that if someone was giving me a review of the last supper, 
on Yelp, it would have gotten like all kinds of thumbs down, right? Like, this wow, the waiter was super early. rude. One dude was dipping his food into someone else's bowl. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it would have been a mess, right? Trust me. So, so, so let's talk about what Jesus and the Holy Family specifically would have eaten, right? Uh, and this is something that I think it's also really interesting to consider Jesus eating because he's God, right? Truly man and truly God. So in his humanity, he got hungry and he probably had things that his palate preferred over others, right? Yeah. Um, you know, he would even get hangry, right? Like you talked like earlier about the, the fig. fig tree he's like, man, I'm hot. hungry and there's no figs, man. This tree, you cursed. You're done. You're done. And I, this is like kind of the only place where you really see him use his wrath almost capriciously, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, but he had material human needs. Absolutely. Yeah. So what would Jesus, Holy Family, and the apostles have eaten? They would have eaten a lot of, well, again, bread. Mm -hmm. Now, bread was the absolute most important food to people at the time. And I think you can see that in so many references in scripture, whether it's the sower, whether it's the, you know, the eternal bread or the Eucharist, uh, the parable of grains, picking grains, all that, the threshing floor. It's the most common denominator of food in the world, globally, bread. And and what goes perfectly well with bread? Olives yeah. and olive spreads. And everywhere you go throughout, Oils. yeah, everywhere you go throughout the Holy Land, you see these ancient olive presses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and Gethsemane you, was yeah. an olive press. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. that's what it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Olive oil was the most important trade good in the old world besides spices. And mm-hmm. it was like olive oil was the, you know, the crude oil of today. That's what right. made the world economy go around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of olive oils and you'll see that in, in chrismation, right? You know, in Jesus Christ, Christos, it's the, you know, uh, Christian one. And that would have been with a blessed and spiced olive oil. A mm-hmm. um, lot of, so bread, super important. Everyone ate bread from the rich to the poor. The rich probably would eat a finer, you know, honestly, a white bread, right? The now poor people bread is white bread. It's like you go get your wonder bread and that's what the, you know, low class eat and the rich people eat their seven grain. But Mm -hmm. back in the day, it was flip-flopped, right? Poor people ate, you know, wheat, I'm sorry, like whole wheat bread, rye bread, grainy bread, and rich people would have eaten the more Enriched. Enriched. They would have eaten a lot of unleavened bread, too, and it was prepared every day. That was kind of like what the mom did. Mary would have cooked a lot of bread. Mm -hmm. And most of the time in in ancient uh, Hebrew cities, they would have had a communal hearth, you know, a communal Mm -hmm. oven where you go down, you make your bread at home, and they take it in. And, like, you'll see some cool videos where they they take the bread, they flatten, they'll just stick it right to the wall. Mm -hmm. And then when it's done, it'll just fall off, and it's all blistery, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of like— Um, that is really cool. Yeah, and you can see these videos now where people still make bread like that, but everyone ate bread. The quality of the bread depended on how rich you were, but that was the the common denominator. Now, poor people, what kind of meats would they have? They would have had probably mostly goat and fish. Yeah, goat. You wouldn't have used the lamb as much because lamb was producing wool, which was making your clothes. And you only ate the lamb once it either got old or once a year you do a young lamb for in the spring, right? right. Uh, you know, steak, they had cow and they had cattle, but its pr- ability to produce milk and cheeses mm-hmm. and stuff like that and yogurts, 
again, same type of thing. And you had to be really rich. It was a huge investment to have a cow. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think about the apostles and where, you know, a greater majority of them, the Sea of Galilee, I mean, they were all fishermen. Mm-hmm. And that was that's the biggest trade. So when you visit the Holy Land and you realize that 90% of Jesus's ministry was done in and around the Galilee, you know, that that's important. So what what are they eating? They're eating a lot of fish. Yeah, it'd have been like if Jesus came now and his apostles, they'd all be longshoresmen from Boston, right? <laughs> like, yeah, hey, Andrew, come over shout, here. Shout out to the Boston Catholics yeah. we got on the family. Come over here and check out this guy, <laughs> Jesus, it. man. He's, you know, like, that's who they were. They were, I you know, common it. people. Yeah. And you mentioned fish. One of the really, you know, what's the most common condiment that we have today in America? It's either ketchup or ranch dressing, mm-hmm. God help us, right? Mm-hmm. Back then, it was a thing. It was a, a Roman thing called garum, okay? And it was basically fermented fish juice. It was almost like if you've ever had like fish sauce. Fish oil. Not oil. It's like like squid sauce or fish sauce yeah. that you get at like an Asian restaurant. That was the m- most common thing. That was served with almost every meal. Hmm. So a lot of the fish trade was going into making garum. They weren't just like catching hundreds and hundreds of fish and everyone was eating it that day. You know, you'd be wasteful of that. The majority of it would be going into this, like you would salt the fish, add vinegar to it, and then kind of, you know, squeeze it out and you yeah. had this condiment. That was probably the most, that was the ketchup of its day. It's used as a binder today in food. Mm-hmm. Well, and make, like it binds salt. flavor. Yeah. Yeah. I'm getting hungry for some fish I, right that's now, why I told, That's why I said it'd be Dude, the show. Show. Oh, I, was, I was thinking about Every time we record, there's this little <laughs> fish restaurant right here by Father Rich's Parish. It's really good. It's so good. Love that. <laughs> I, I th- that's what I'm looking at now. Thanks. <laughs> that's all I can think about. <laughs> and one of my favorite stories in the Bible is where Jesus is cooking bre- breakfast for the apostles after oh, the resurrection. Oh, me too. Yeah. I love that. Mm-hmm. It's one of the churches. It's the Church of the Primacy of Peter or the Church of the Coles. Or they might have the Chapel of the Coles there, but... You know, they're all out fishing after Jesus' resurrection. Peter sees them on the shore. They all run, and Jesus made them breakfast. And it was probably simple fish and bread. Mm-hmm. You know? What kind of fish were in the Sea of Galilee? Um, one of the most typical would have been uh, tilapia, mm-hmm. uh, which is also known as St. Peter's, Peter's fish, fish yeah. because it's got two little black spots, right? And the side of it, right behind its fins. You must have had that when you were when you were up there, because it's tilapia. It, yeah. it's well, Peter's fish. That's everybody. Everybody calls it Peter's fish. So and they say that because there's the two little black spots, mm-hmm. and they say that's where when uh, he had to pay the tax, so he went and got a fish, and there's a coin in the fish's mouth. Peter pulled the fish out, and he was holding it like this, and that was the coin. But those two marks are left by Peter. That's the mm-hmm. you know apocryphal tale. Mm-hmm. Um, now. What else would Jesus have eaten? You know, he would have eaten very much, you know, similar foods to everyone else. Now, one of the interesting things that when I was researching this is that most people didn't eat a lot of vegetables. The only people who ate vegetables were the very rich or the very poor. The very rich had the means to be able to cultivate vegetables, which were harder to grow. You know, your things like your, you know, zucchinis and um, celery, things like that. The poor would have just been picking them, growing wild. The rich could have cultivated them. The middle classes didn't really have them. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But a lot of fruits and nuts as well because those were easier to cultivate. because And easier to carry with you. And they grew on trees. They were able to be dried. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they could be made into nut paste, things like that. Uh, so Jesus would have been eating figs, uh, pomegranates, pistachios, almonds, um, yeah, you would have got along with them great eating mm-hmm. all the pistachios in the house. Yeah. I'd be cracking pistachios for them. 
<laughs> Throwing them all over the ground. <laughs> the, the, the 13th apostle over here, he's not mentioned in the Bible. You had Peter, the prince of the apostles, you had Judas, the money keeper, and you had the pistachio crusher. St. <laughs> Ryan, the pistachio crusher. He's falling around Jesus like cracking pistachios. Well, back then they couldn't split them, so this job was important. Yeah. It was. And you know how to split them. Trust yeah. me, they're all over the house. Yeah. I, I have an extra tooth God gave me. <laughs> You're a genetic marvel. <laughs> I have gifts. I have gifts. Oh. So we'll get into what would have specifically been at the Last Supper uh, in a bit. Um, but I think I want to talk a little bit about the whole concept of the heavenly feast, the heavenly banquet, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have your saints' feast days. That shows how important food was. Um, this, this imagery is not used as much as it was in the early church. But in the first few centuries of the church, you'd go into like, uh, you know, St. Priscilla's catacombs and you'll see the heavenly banquet where a lot of times it was, you know, where when a saint would die and go to heaven, there was a feast prepared for them after their acceptance into heaven. And that was kind of like their reward. That's how important food was. But you'd go there and you'd break bread with your heavenly family as a welcoming, right? I mean, you look at the parable of the good, uh, of the uh, prodigal son, he comes home, they create this big feast, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you're coming home to heaven, there's this big feast prepared for you that Jesus has prepared in his father's house. And the Russian Orthodox faith, and I learned this in the seminary from one of our professors, that he said that like, like literally in the hospitals, when somebody passes, Mm -hmm. that the whole family comes and they have a big party. Really? In the hospital room. (laughs) Like right after they pass, <laughs> the priest comes, like everything, you know? Yeah, pass the red cabbage. Where is it? Oh, it's on grandma. Oh, man. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> grandma. Hey, hope the food's good in heaven, you know? <laughs> no, but that's that's good, you know? that's. I think that's a healthy approach to death, right? It is. It's, you mm-hmm. know, it's joyful. It is. Um, and, you know, the we really hunger for that heavenly feast. And, you know, the Eucharist is but a foretaste mm-hmm. of what that banquet is going to be, the fullness of what we experience when we when we pray through the book of Genesis and we realize, you know, that, that paradise of mm-hmm. everything being provided by the hands of God, you know, and, and not having to labor and toil, mm-hmm. but, but to receive, fully receptive of God's hand, a banquet that he prepares for us in the kingdom of heaven is something that we could realize in that ache because we constantly return to the dependency on I've got to I've got to make food. What are we going to have for Material. dinner? What are we going to have for you know what I, I've got? Well, it's the toil of Adam. It's the toil. Right. It's right. it's, right. it's right. absolutely the toil. So that points to the ache. Oh. So the ache is going to be met by God in this in this heavenly banquet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, even the foretaste of. Uh, of heaven, the hunger that we have for Christ, and, and that's that that this this we we are satisfied fully. Mm-hmm. Our souls are satisfied fully in that hunger by receiving the Eucharist, which is obviously Him taking the place of bread. Mm-hmm. So you know the whole sense of of the heavenly banquet, I think, is perfectly envisioned within Scripture with Peter's vision in the Acts of the Apostles. And I'd like to just kind of touch on that mm-hmm. briefly because I think it, it brings us all the way back to Genesis and God really ordering all of creation to be subdued. And then one other important aspect while you get that ready mm-hmm. is that so many times people say, well, how can you be against this and this in modern society? Because 
the Bible says so, but the Bible also says not to eat, you know, shellfish, you know, in the That's Old Testament. Good, and point. they use it as a kind of gotcha, but they don't understand the distinction mm-hmm. between the levels of the law. But also, this shows you exactly how those biblical uh, dietary restrictions were rescinded. And and those people are, are reading Leviticus and Deuteronomy, like Leviticus right. chapter 11 and, Ooh. and you know, jumping into Deuteronomy's uh, restrictive diets, you know, and, and that's important to recognize in the history of salvation. But what Christ does is, is something absolutely revolutionary, and it turned Peter's world upside down, yeah. literally. So the vision of Peter, this begins chapter 10, verse 9. Next day, while they were on their way and nearing the city, Peter went up to the roof terrace to pray about noontime. And this is in the ancient city of Joppa, where they have like Egyptian ruins. It's a really to cool Joppa. place. Get to the Joppa. Get <laughs> to the it's Joppa. Such a, it's a great place to visit. So you, if you're going to Israel, you don't want to miss this. It's right next to Tel Aviv. He was hungry and wished to eat. And while While they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something resembling a large sheet coming down, lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all the earth's four-legged animals and reptiles and birds of the sky. A voice said to him, get up, Peter, slaughter and eat. But Peter said, certainly not, sir, for never have I eaten anything profane and unclean. The voice spoke to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you are not to call profane. This happened three times, and then the object was taken up into the sky. So I, I just love that scriptural account, and I love that church to go pray and meditate on this on this particular mystery, because what it's showing is what is yet to come. Like you brought up the eschatological reality. Mm-hmm. So th- this is eschatology. Mm-hmm. Perfectly, you know, which a, is basically a heavenly apparition. Yeah, it's as for those that don't know what the word means. It literally means like the next things, the, the things next, to come, the yeah, things of the, of the right. afterlife. Yeah, the reality to come, the new heavens and the new earth. You know, so what is to come? We're getting a little glimpse of this, and we we're talking about the Eucharist as being a foretaste, which we're about to get into the Eucharist in just a, sure. just a minute, and what happened at the Last Supper and what was eaten by the apostles and those gathered around Christ, but. You know, what we have here is is a pure eschatological revelation mm-hmm. of what is to come mm-hmm. and and what what God has made clean. So this now we take all of these dietary restrictions and and how how are we supposed to approach this in the evangelization of the Gentiles and mm-hmm. and and taking out this good news of Jesus's resurrection? You know, are they supposed to practice the dietary principles of what we learn in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Well, they debate that at the first council of Jerusalem, yeah. and they say, "Look, just as long as you're not eating meat that was strangled for an idol, you're fine. Like yeah. if someone choked out a cow for Zeus, don't eat that steak. Mm-hmm. But besides that, you're cool." That's pretty much saying, "Look, we are no longer under the dietary restrictions of the Old Testament of the law of Moses, but it doesn't abrogate the other laws. It doesn't abrogate the other um, moral." obligations, and it doesn't say that things that were also in the Old Testament are not fine, too. So it's a bad argument from people, but, you know, the rest of it being what you said, you know, the the foretaste of heaven is really important. Mm -hmm. It really is. And where is that perfect foretaste? But the heavenly banquet that manifests through epiclesis, you know, like God what a parting. Great word. I love that word. God parting the heavens and pouring down his holy presence in in transubstantiation, like, you know, the bread and the wine being transformed into the living body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. This this revelation, this epiclesis 
is is the source and summit of our faith. And I think this would be a perfect way to finish the show is to really enter into that Last Supper and what's upheld in tradition as, you know, what what was enjoyed at that table. Well, speaking so, of enjoyment, there's a trip that Father Rich and I want to invite you on this summer. If you're a woman or you're a man, <laughs> we have something that is life-changing for you at Estovier Expeditions and Fiat Expeditions. This is a three full day trip into the mountains of Montana and Colorado, where you and your fellow brothers and sisters in separate trips come to grow in your faith with the beauty of God, surrounded by the beauty of God, walking and journeying through adventure with your fellow sisters and brothers in Christ, having the sacraments there, confession, mass, uh, just an amazing experience that we piloted last year that was, in our opinion, very anointed. We're really happy to present this to you. Yeah, and and every day, morning and at dinner, you're centered around the table. And those meals and those conversations at Mm -hmm. those meals are, you know, you'll never lose touch with that. I mean, it it was really, it was an anointed pilot. We're excited about expanding it out and starting for the first time the Fiat expedition for our sisters. So I'm thrilled about where this is going and, and how important it is culturally to be able to retreat, enter into nature and labor together prepare the food together. That was a lot of fun being yeah. in the kitchen yeah. and preparing food yeah. as well. Breaking for one the another. oven. We broke the we oven. Huh? Break the oven. <laughs> and I broke a coffee pot. But and I have a scar to prove yeah, it. You did. You went to the hospital. Yeah, yeah I called you guys that on the first up. day of the trip. I'm like, hey, Ryan, how's it going? He's like, yeah, Father Rich is the hospital. He cut himself on <laughs> coffee. I thought maybe he went out and fought a bear or something like that. Something manly. But no, he's like, I was making an espresso and I cut my hand. <laughs> And no, but it's you know it's a really cool thing, uh, uh, you know Fiat and uh, Estovir. Uh, it's really about focusing number one on your distinct character as a man or a woman, yeah. getting in touch with nature and community, uh, really experiencing something. Look, we've all been stuck in our house for two years. It sucks, right? Oh my gosh, get out, yeah. get some friends, get out in nature. It's a cool trip. It's a healthy trip. Uh, with mass, confession, food, friends. Great adventurous trip, yeah. too. You know, mm-hmm. we're going to be doing some rafting, mm-hmm. some hiking, beautiful trails. The four-mile falls that we went on in Pagosa was absolutely amazing. And this year, we're incorporating ATV excursions. So there's going to be some... I can't wait till you call me and tell me that Father Rich flipped his over. <laughs> he broke his finger. Don't put that on me. <laughs> Don't put that juju on me, Ricky Bobby. So check out, uh, if you're a man, check out Estovier Expeditions there. You'll see uh, our trip to Colorado um, and the one to Montana. Those are going to be in June and July. So take a look at those dates. Um, and then if you're a woman, uh, Fiat Expeditions, that one's filling up pretty well. And that one's going to be in Bozeman, too. So awesome. um, check it out. Uh, you know, make make plans. Set this time aside. It, it's something that is really well life. worth it. Yeah, yeah it sure. is. The links is. are below in the description and mm-hmm. on this episode's page on CatholicTalkShow.com. Now, while we're at it, we might as well talk about our other great uh, sponsor, and that's Exodus 90. Now, Exodus 90 does the same thing that Fiat and Estovir does, and it's trying to get you to go out into the wild, but it takes a more interior approach. It tries to get you into the deserts of your own heart Mm -hmm. so that you can use asceticism, you can use these practices of denial to reorient yourself to a closer, stronger relationship with God, family, and uh, the people around you. proven practices. Absolutely. Ever since St. Anthony went out into the desert, Mm -hmm. you know, these are... 
and and it's it's what's so great about it is you can do this like in your daily life. Mm-hmm. That's right. And you do it with your brothers. Same same thing as Estovir is the the fraternity. Mm-hmm. Um, so f- I, b- I believe Exodus ninety now has a place where you can find a group near you. It or does. Even start one. They did all kinds of cool stuff yeah. with their app. So you can have a fraternity finder. They have daily prayers, daily right. saints. Uh, they have a lot of really cool uh, gospel reflections. They do Lent and Advent programs. A lot of cool stuff in the yeah. app itself on top of its ascetic practices and its programs. Yeah, that Fraternity Finder, I think, is... Game changer. Yeah. What a game changer, man. I mean, yeah. they, that was a brilliant move on their part because so many times I'll get messages or emails like, hey, Father, do you know anybody that's going through this? And, you know, I'll, I'll connect some people and, and try my right. best. But now that it's on the app, yeah. it's so much more well Yeah, my it. parish is doing one, too, as well. That's yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. So if you want to, go to exodus90.com, uh, and uh, you can... Try the app out for free, right? You can go in there and you can see all the features, see if this is something for you. It's not just something that you do for 90 days, right? It's not only just from, you know, up leading up to Lent. You can do an exodus at any time. You can go through these practices at any time. There's you can a Latin, use these things. There's you know? a Latin phrase, per crucem ad lucem. Per crucem is through the cross, ad lucem to the light. Mm-hmm. And and it is the ascetical practices of our traditions, of yeah. our faith. Mm-hmm. And it's it's what is, uh, is shown to us throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament and the person of Jesus Christ entering into the desert, uh, entering into those periods of solitude, going up on top of the mountain to pray to the Father. This is very important for our overall spiritual health that when we enter into a period of discipline, we enter into self-sacrifice, struggle, entering into our own death, like willingly, that we enter into that dying to self mode to enter more deeply into life mm-hmm. and into that form of enlightenment that that God wants to enlighten the human consciousness toward him so that our our livelihood our ego is sanctified and we we are growing closer to God and to one another and I don't know of a greater program out there that's than right. Exodus 90 that's doing that. Yeah, so go to Exodus 90 there's going to be a link below, you try it out. It's one of those things, man, that we got so many things that keep us locked up and under key and chain today's world. Exodus 90 really helps set you free, so we really recommend it. Mm-hmm. What did Jesus and the apostles eat at the Last Supper? Now, we've all seen da Vinci's famous painting, and you can kind of still make out the food that was on the table, but that was a Renaissance Italian taking a guess at what would have been there. But archaeologists and uh, basically um, anthropologists have went back and kind of reconstructed what would have been a typical meal for the people at the time, especially around the, you know, these, these feast days and these holy days. So... Let's let's get into that a little bit. Now, number one, we know exactly the two most important things that were at the Last Supper. And what are those, Father Rich? Obviously, bread and wine. Right. So that that's central. That's definitely there. But you know, the the experience of of how they would have eaten and what would have been there, it would have been a communal meal. So Delacross, you would have loved this because your hands would have been digging into all sorts of goodies on the table. I've I seen, don't. I don't know whether to take that as a compliment or a jab. Right I was now. just no. I was just pointing out the fact that, like, <laughs> even last night, you with that sushi plate that we had, your hands were digging in the sushi plate, and there was soy sauce everywhere, hey. and somehow pistachio shells. Take I have it easy. no idea. Take it how easy. How you pair pistachios with we're sushi? Talking about Jesus, please. All right, sorry, sorry. Just through sheer gumption. This is a rant. This is a rant. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
what would have been typical? So now there's uh, there's a lot of conjecture on what the actual date of the Last Supper was because it's kind of hard to figure out, right? Uh, was it a Seder meal? I think even in, in the Orthodox, they'd say it's a heresy to say it was a Seder meal. Now, it could have had a lot of similarities because that would have been similar food, right? Uh, but it's hard to tell, right? A Seder meal would have had a lamb, but you know, even Pope Benedict said that the lambs had not been yet slaughtered because the lambs were always slaughtered ritually around that time of year. Good Friday. Yeah, but Jesus was the actual new lamb. So there wouldn't have been lamb right. at the Last Supper, right? Which I think is pretty interesting. But then again, maybe not. But I, I, I trust Pope Benedict. Mm-hmm. With my whole heart, I trust I trust his right. teaching. So the things that these anthropologists and these uh, archaeologists conjecture would have been there, uh, there would have been something called a colant, right? It's kind of like, um, I don't know, like baked beans almost, right? Or if you've ever had like... Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like beans and, and, and vegetables, kind of like a stew, like a bean stew. Um, they would have had uh, they would have had olives, definitely, and olives. hyssop, mm-hmm. um, which is a kind of like a mint type thing. They would have had probably bitter herbs. They would have had things like celery. They would have had um, a, a charo set, which is a charo set's kind of like a like a fig jelly or mm-hmm. fig preserves. You know, they take the figs and they're able to, you know, make it last longer. Um, how did the how did the apostles make this distinguish? I mean, because right now, obviously, we we celebrate mass. We don't have all the beans and the olives and everything. But right. th- this was the Last Supper. This was the institution of the Eucharist, the yeah. presence of God and bread and wine. And so you look at Acts of the Apostles and the 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 masses that were said, right? The 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 celebration of this this liturgical event that occurred and and it's and it being brought forth into communities. How did they distinguish that it was only the bread and the wine that we should use to celebrate this at some point? Well, Father Rich, I think you say this every day. Yeah, and Jesus just literally said, "Do this in memory well, of me." Really, so there there was you know when he took bread and blessed and broke it. You know, the emphasis within the table dynamics absolutely shifted and changed. And when he was revealing himself as the unblemished lamb that was to be sacrificed, doing this liturgical action in his work mm-hmm. in the world, liturgia, the sense of of what the is work. that what is that work? Mm-hmm. So the work that he's working out is salvation by becoming that atoning so- sacrifice. So he's expressing, you know, this is my body, this is my blood offered up for you. So he's fulfilling, you know, the prophetic voice of the ritual practice of the children of Israel all the way up to the present day and what we still uphold. So the dynamic shift that happens at the at the table mm-hmm. at the Last Supper is so important to recognize in the midst of this gathering. And yeah, it was he's recognized by the apostles. Absolutely. And, and that's obviously. why I always try to say this to, to our community. It's like, this is we don't want to uphold transactional Catholicism. I don't want you to just come in, receive the Eucharist, and split. No, like you should be bringing food here. Like you should be setting out your blankets yeah. and having the kids play and having a communal meal together. 
that's where we should be ordered, living in common with one another, mm-hmm. you know, from this Eucharistic dynamic of doing this in memory of Jesus, we need to be able to enter into a deeper form of community with one another. Yeah, I mean, it's very important to focus on bread and wine because he was establishing the new and everlasting covenant. And you don't hear in mass, you know, and then after they had eaten, he took the bean stew in his holy and venerable hands, <laughs> right? Because, I mean, it was a very specific action, right? Uh, or, you know, he took the charo set in his holy and venerable hands. It's he Look took at this a, jelly. Yeah. He didn't say this... Take these beans. This is my body, right? So, I mean, there was a very specific intent with the institution of the Eucharist. So I think it would be really, really important to go back to the Last Supper. So I want to go to Luke, his treatment of the Last Supper, starting chapter 22, and it starts at verse 14 and goes all the way down to 20. When the hour had come, this is after he sent the apostles to make preparation in the upper room. So he sends them... Everything that Jesus says comes true. They find this upper room. They make the preparations. And when the hour had come, he took his place at table with the apostles. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I shall not eat it again until there is fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, and said, Take this and share it among yourselves, for I tell you that from this time on I shall not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took the bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which will be given for you. Do this in memory. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which will be shed for you. This dynamic shift happens in the process of them eating. This is happening within the process of them observing and preparing the Passover and Jesus expressing, I've had this desire to enter into this final feast mm. with you. Mm. Like we we have had food along the way. We've, you know, greater yeah. majority of Jesus's ministry was done around table. Mm-hmm. Now this comes to his last an ever-living table experience. Mm-hmm. And what happens at this upper room is at the very end of this meal, he takes bread and he takes the cup and he expresses the new and everlasting covenant. So this, this shift has then been in the practice of our faith from that moment until this present day. You know, in in your local parishes, so it's like, what what do I recommend is daily mass. You know, mm-hmm. how could I not participate in this daily? And I, I don't want to be bashful and say, oh, you know, just come on Sundays. It's like, no, there's a fruit mm-hmm. of the spirit in participating in daily mass and going to the altar to return to this mystery to enter into that everlasting covenant that Jesus establishes at this meal. Yep. Now. I'll put, again, like I said, that list of all the foods of the Bible, right, of everything that's mentioned in the Bible and with its verse and uh, passage. I'll also put uh, recipes to those things that we mentioned that they would have eaten at the Last Supper, that charoset and that... um, uh, I'll also put one to garum, too, which is, you know, pretty cool stuff. You can kind of see that real food. And if you're ever looking for food that's similar to this, you know, they don't really have a lot of Jewish restaurants... In this sense, they have, you know, Jewish restaurants typically are like delicatessens, right? Uh, Around me, at least. But if you go to like a Lebanese restaurant, you can get very similar food. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But there's a couple recipes that I do want to talk about real quick. And one is I think it's the best recipe in the Bible. And it's one that I think we're going to make for Howard to eat after this episode. <laughs> and we've, we've talked about this before. I'm yeah, sure. well, this is Howard's. Howard's one of our first episodes. We're going to go it to is. Timothy's and we're going to eat some fish and some good food. Howard's going to have Ezekiel bread, but not the good stuff that you can get from the store, you know, like the raisin Ezekiel bread. Right, Howard? Howard? Howard's got some saliva coming out of his uh, mouth no. right now. He's looking, uh, he's, his appetite is wet. You're going to eat the original Ezekiel bread, Howard, and that's the bread that's cooked over human poop. <laughs> Excrement, if you will. Well, we actually had someone commenting that we have not been making enough poop jokes lately. So I really <laughs> wanted to squeeze this one in. <laughs> well, squeeze this one out. out, there you go. <laughs> out. Uh, but this is coming from Ezekiel 4, and it's called The Defiled Bread. But take wheat, barley, beans, lentils, millet, and spelt. Again, that's a really good example of the grains that they ate. <laughs> Put them in a single container and make them into bread for yourself. This is what you are to eat during the 390 days you lie on your side. You are, weigh, you are to weigh out 20 shekels of food to each day. And you are to eat it at set times. You are also to measure out a sixth of a hint of water to drink, and you are to drink it at set times. And you shall eat the food as you would a barley cake after you bake it over dried human excrement in the sight of people. <laughs> Look, you couldn't even do this in private. You had to go out and stand in front of people in your shame and cook the bread over dry human poop. That just reeks. We'll of start humility. up the fire out back. That's for right, you, Howard. And we'll watch. And thankfully, we have a lot of dried human poop sitting around <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> We'll post that on Instagram. And, and then the Lord said, this is how the Israelites will eat their defiled bread among the nations to which I shall banish them. Ah, Lord God, I said, I have never defiled myself from my youth until now, and I have not eaten anything found dead or mauled by wild beasts. No unclean meat has ever entered my mouth. That sounds like Peter. Mm -hmm. Look, he replied, I will let you use cow dung instead of human excrement, and you will make you will bake your bread over that. But this is talking about kind of the shame of the Israelite people after they drifted from God. And God's saying, look, if you want to get back in my good graces, here's a punishment. Mm -hmm. And having to cook over human dung means that you're poor. You are driven out of the land. You can't have lands to graze, um, you know, grazing animals like sheep and cow. And you firewood. Know. You got no firewood. Well, honestly, poop was a very common fuel back in the day. They did, there's not a lot of trees in, mm -hmm. in the Levant, yeah. right? And there's still it is still fuel today, like right. in, in a lot Bio, of different biomass. Yeah. yeah, the nice word. To use Howard for. heats his house with it. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a big old poop furnace. <laughs> So, Howard, I can't wait to have you eat that. <laughs> we'll post a video of that on the Patreon. Uh, of you baking it in the sight of people, because it has to be done in the sight yeah. of people, so we'll make a video of it. Oh, my gosh. Uh, the other recipe uh, that I'll put on the website is a pretty cool recipe, and it's all the church ladies have always passed this around. It's called Scripture Cake, right? It's this cake that you can make where it's like, uh, it tells you put like, you know, one cup of... Jeremiah 12 or whatever, and it tells you all the verses and the measurements, and you have to go and look in the Bible what it is. And it's kind of like a spiced raisin cake or whatever. But it's a pretty cool thing to kind of go in and say, okay, well, what does this verse say? Well, I have to open up the Bible and it says, okay, well, it's this much flour, this much sugar, this much honey, whatever it That's is. Cool. So I'll put that in there. Um, but I think we should go eat, man. I, I think, think we I should think it's too. time. And I mean, what a perfect way to kind of send you on your way this week, too. And get together with some friends. Make these make these uh, preparations. Yeah, make that poop bread. Make that poop bread. <laughs> and Look, enjoy. We can, do, we can do it like a communal party. I'll bring the flour, you bring the water, you bring the poop, right? <laughs> <laughs> I've got some poop that I could bring, actually. I'll bring Howard. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to eat it. 
So, my friends, we hope that you enjoyed this show. I'm glad that we were able to talk about the poop bread again. Of course. I, look, anytime you can talk about blast poop bread. Blast of the past. That's it. And uh, <laughs> we, we were so glad. The, yeah, I said blast of the past. Oh, okay. That's not what I thought you said. What did you think I said? I thought it was more poop related. <laughs> I thought you said it was a blast from the ass. <laughs> oh, my gosh. The puns. Uh, they're just flowing. It is. Mm. Yeah. Some big <laughs> piles of puns. So we got to stop it, We got to stop it. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.